The work that I'll be presenting today is sort of the earliest presentable work, I suppose, from uh, the project that my research group started this winter. Uh, so I'm a member of the Criminal Justice Research Group at Oxford University, and we got funding for a project on neuroscience and criminal justice. And my first task was to look into how neuroscience might impact the concept of criminal responsibility. Uh, I should warn you that um, I did put neuroscience in the title, but I'm a philosopher by training, and there won't be very much of it at all. Um, there will be, I, I think, some interesting philosophy, but it, I, I find it interesting. Uh, I should also say that it's all very tentative for me still at the moment, so this is uh, very definitely a work in progress. I'm looking forward to comments and questions that will hopefully help me clarify my thinking. Um, having said all this, this is what I intend to do for uh, three quarters of an hour or so. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the neuroscience argument against retributivism, uh, which is commonly attributed to a 2005 article by Joshua Green and Jonathan Cohen. Um, so I'll try and recap their argument, talk a little bit about some of the strengths and weaknesses of it, and present a revised version that I think is better suited to actually challenging uh, the, just the, the theory that, or sort of the family of theories that we can call retributivism. Then to clarify how it does that, I'll try and uh, present a general model of how retributivists justify imposing punishment. Uh, that's one of the fundamental problems in uh, philosophy of criminal justice. Uh, a particular mode of doing it that's common to retributivist theories, and that's challenged by the neuroscience argument. Uh, then I'll look at several different ways that retributivists could try to counter the challenge from neuroscience, but I'll be particularly concerned with one which tries to modify the necessary account of desert and or responsibility to try to, to um, counter the challenge that way. And I'll outline three different strategies for how retributivists could and can, or sorry, could and have responded uh, to, to the challenge. And I'll try and show why each of them uh, doesn't look as if it's possible to succeed. And then I'll round off by saying a little bit about how I think it may be possible to uh, preserve the notion of criminal responsibility that we employ in uh, criminal justice. Uh, intuitively to most of us, that seems like it's a good idea. So it'd be nice to have an explanation of why we want to preserve this, um, but at the cost of shifting the grounds of the justification. So that's the schedule for my presentation. Okay, so the basic argument is attributable to uh, Joshua Green and Jonathan Cohen in their 2005 article. This is Joshua Green, who many of you are probably familiar with. He's a neuroscientist and philosopher at Harvard. He's published widely on the implications for ethics of uh, findings in neuroscience. Uh, his article has been somewhat controversial uh, in some respects, and in some circles at least. Um, but he's also a very prominent uh, young scholar. And the argument he presents in uh, Neuroscience and the Law article that, uh, that I'll take as a basis for, for my talk here is roughly the following. So the first premise is that there's, generally speaking, three positions on the problem of free will. There's libertarianism, compatibilism, and hard determinism. Now, that's not an entirely accurate picture, but... Uh, that's a premise I think is fairly unproblematic in this context. So libertarianism is a group of theories that say that uh, we do have free will and it's incompatible with a determinist world. 
so they need an explanation of how that works, uh, either by the world being a determinist and now having free will in spite of uh, what then would probably be randomness, uh, or some sort of uh, substance dualist, Kausasui type explanation. Uh, then they're compatibilists, which is, uh, as far as I know, the dominant position in analytical philosophy at least. Uh, there's a, a major questionnaire a couple of years ago that showed that to be the position held by, I think, about two-thirds of uh, people working in, in Anglo-Saxon analytical philosophy, at least. Uh, and this is a family of theories that hold that uh, free will and or moral responsibility are compatible with a determinist world. So even if the world is determined, all events are causally uh, determined in advance of their happening, we can still say that there's such a thing as free will or moral responsibility. Uh, that's a particularly interesting position uh, with respect to, to this problem. And then there's hard determinism, which is the position that Cohen and Green favour, uh, which is the claim that uh, determinism is incompatible with free will and or moral responsibility, and hence there's no such thing as free will or moral responsibility. Uh, so we'll need a different account of we'll need an account of ethics that can deal without those two concepts. Okay, second premise. There are two major theories of uh, justification for punishment in criminal justice. There's the retributivist family of theories and the consequentialist family of theories. And again, this is somewhat of an oversimplification. I think in particular the restorative justice people who've been sort of a prominent and groundbreaking group of scholars in the past 10, 15 years might be slightly offended. But for uh, the purposes of uh, the debate we have today, uh, these are the two relevant positions. Uh, so retributivists claim, uh, broadly speaking, that Punishment is justified by virtue of the offenders deserving to be punished. That's the fundamental premise of retributist theories. Whereas consequentialist theories hold that punishment is justified by virtue of the benefits that it's going to produce in the future, such as deterring future offenders. Um, so that looks like a fairly plausible premise as well. And then finally, they claim that the legal system is retributist. So the uh, legal system as we know it today is based on retributist premises uh, and it sort of spells out in its institutions uh, retributist policy. Okay, those three I think are fairly unproblematic, but then here's the philosophically interesting and potentially problematic bits. First of all, Green and Cohen claim that retributivism uh, requires desert for justifying punishment, but they also claim two further things. First, that desert requires moral responsibility, and secondly, that moral responsibility requires free will. So there's several other steps necessary to ultimately justify retributivist punishment. Uh, secondly, they claim that modern neuroscience disproves free will. Uh, I think that's a contentious claim, but they claim that it uh, does or will. There's slightly uh, un sort of unclear about whether it's already happened or it's just something that they can foresee happening definitively in the near future. Um, and then finally, uh, they claim that uh, when faced with the alternatives of consequentialism uh, or abolition, which is also, of course, a possibility, uh, and presumably one that some retributivists would favour, if you're a retributivist, you think consequentialist theories fail, if your own theory also fails, well, then we'll simply lack a justification for punishment, and then we should stop punishing but they claim that faced with those two alternatives, we have good grounds to choose consequentialism. And so they conclude, advances in neuroscience are likely to change the way people think about human action, 
criminal responsibility by vividly illustrating that free will, as we ordinarily understand it, is an illusion generated by our cognitive architecture. The rigorous notions of criminal responsibility ultimately depend on this illusion, and if we're lucky, they will give way to consequentialist ones, thus radically transforming our approach to criminal justice. So that's the gist of their argument, I think. And that's led, uh, I thought I actually discovered this metaphor, but it turns out that Richard Dawkins, of all people, beat me to it, which is unfortunate, because once Richard Dawkins has said something, you can be fairly certain that people will have heard it from him rather than you. Um, but an apt metaphor for where that leaves retributive punishment is... <laughs> Green puts it, 
is that neuroscience will be able to show us uh, the intricacies of the causal happenings in the brain. So fairly soon we'll have a complete brain modelling that can in real time show uh, how the brain works and you'll be able to correlate that completely with what people experience, think, how they act and so on and so forth. And once that's happened, it seems that reference to the best explanation is going to be that the brain causes all this and it's a terminate structure and so forth. Um, but there's ways you could dispute that argument, uh, both on the basic level of how bad the case for free will is in general, and whether neuroscience makes it worse. Uh, I plan to get around to doing that in a future paper. Um, you might also ask whether consequentialism genuinely escapes unscathed the way that Green and Cohen seem to assume. Um, one of the problems that's been raised is that standard phrasing of consequentialist ethics is that uh, the right action to perform is that of the available actions which will produce the greatest good or something relevantly similar to that. But of course, if the world's determined and there's no such thing as free will, then there will only ever be one available action to any agent, which means that everybody performs the right action all of the time. Uh, that, that doesn't in itself disprove consequentialism, but it does make consequentialism a lot less interesting than we tend to think. Um, so that's again something that one might look into. And then finally, what I will be focusing on today, does retributivism really require free will? So I'll bracket all of the other potential challenges, including the case for free will, and just look at whether is this claim really true? Could retributivists do without free will uh, and just rely on desert and or moral responsibility? Okay, so let me give you a couple of definitions to um, focus the discussion. Uh, in the following, I will assume that an agent punishes somebody if and only if she intentionally inflicts suffering on that person, uh, the person has committed a moral wrong, and uh, the punishment is part of a condemnatory response for committing that wrong. Now, there's been endless debate about the proper way to define punishment, uh, and I stipulate this definition, I should say. It's not meant to be the end or be all of definitions of punishment. It's simply uh, sort of a good enough definition, I think, that zooms in on the features of punishment pertinent to uh, the problem at hand, namely whether it can be justified in the context of criminal justice. Um, so this is a broad definition. If we wanted to make it even more specific to legal punishment, we can insert relevant qualifiers, uh, say that the moral wrong has to be one criminally prohibited, and that the punishment has to be inflicted by a relevant agent, such as a criminal justice system. Uh, we could also distinguish between a subjective and objective version, uh, where the subjective would be inserting that the agent that punishes needs to believe that the person has committed a moral wrong. It doesn't need to actually be true. Um, and finally, we should note that I intend response for committing the wrong to encompass a wide variety of different uh, motives for responding that way. So this is compatible with consequentialists punishing people. You could respond to somebody committing a moral wrong by punishing them in order to deter future offenders, for instance. Okay. Secondly, I'll hold that a theory of the justification of punishment is retributivist if and only if it holds the following. There is one, at least one reason call that R for or against punishing a person that is sensitive to what that person deserves. And it is true in at least some occasions that R is decisive in justifying punishment. 
So that's sort of, um, in one sense, a narrower definition of retributivism than you sometimes find. Um, because it focuses exclusively on dessert, and you will find theories that uh, call themselves retributivist but don't. So it's, again, it's stipulative and it's revisionist in that sense. And that's, I mean, I, I, I think that's fine for my purposes because dessert is what I'm really after. But it's just to say that uh, not all theories labelled retributivist will be caught by this definition, only the ones that rely on dessert, and therefore only these theories are challenged by the Green Cohen argument. Um, we should also distinguish, and that's why I've got this rather weird for or against uh, formula, because we need to distinguish between negative and uh, positive retributivism, where negative retributivists are those that fall back to part of the region as one against punishing, uh, which could then be cancelled or weakened by desert. So there might be a reason not to punish persons that applies to everybody, but this reason is then cancelled or weakened sufficiently by wrongdoing and the desert that arises from that, that we can justifiably punish persons. Um, that's a negative retributivist theory, whereas a, a positive one is one that holds that we have a reason to punish these people based on desert. Uh, and finally, that is both the possibility of cancelling or creating, weakening and strengthening reasons. All of these are variations, um, and I think you can find examples of all of these in the literature, although I haven't attempted to do a complete taxonomy. Then I need to introduce one more distinction um, of how dessert actually works. Dessert, I've found, is an extraordinarily difficult concept, and it seems as if there's much less clarity in the literature than one would hope for. Uh, but at least one distinction that I think is relevant and ought to be uh, accepted by all participants is that uh, there's a difference between deontically and telically deserving things. So starting out with the deontically, uh, we can say that the person who's then the deserved subject deontically deserves something if and only if there's a reason to bring it about that the person gets what she deserves, and this reason is sensitive to a suitable feature of uh, the person. Um, so that's, I mean, it, it comes out a bit more complicated than uh, I would prefer, but all it really means is that, say, the person who completes it, the 100 meter race the fastest, deserves to win the race on the basis of having won or run, run the race faster than the competitors. Um, the Telic conception of dessert, on the other hand, locates dessert in axiology rather than in the normative sphere. So if a person technically deserves something, there's a reason to bring it about that the person gets what she deserves. And this reason is based on her getting what she deserves being valuable. And this value is either entirely created or at least altered by her dessert. So this is the conception uh, we find, for instance, when people say that um, it is good if the wicked suffer or the guilty suffer and it is bad if the innocent suffer. Uh, then we're talking about states of the world being either good or bad, and the reasons we have for producing those states are strictly speaking not directly caused by desert, they're sort of caused indirectly via uh, desert affecting the value of different outcomes. Okay, taking all this together, here's a general model of retributivist justification. Uh, retributivists, on my definitions, will need to claim that there's a reason, the presence, absence, or variable strength of which is sensitive to a suitable feature of the person's wrongdoing, and the presence, absence, or variable strength of which at least occasionally justifies the intentional infliction of suffering 
on this person as the condemnatory response for committing that wrong. That's just building all these definitions into a general moral justification. And I should say probably that uh, it's assumed widely in the literature, I've yet to find anybody who disputes this, that justification like this is necessary because suffering is pro tanto bad. So we need reasons to punish people because when we punish we inflict suffering. Um, and that's, that's the account of justifiability I'm interested in here. So it's minimal justification, it's mere permissibility. Uh, you could have stronger accounts where it would be uh, that we're required to punish, but I'm interested in just the minimal one. Okay, so here against the, uh, the picture. We've got justified punishment, which relies on the cert, which relies on moral responsibility, which relies on free will. Now, given the way I've defined retributivism, I'm not going to challenge this element of the equation. Uh, that would run counter to the definition of retributivism. But we can challenge each of the other steps. First, we can challenge this step, which is basically to challenge what, in lack of uh, a better term, I've called the, the retributive desert responsibility thesis, uh, which is just a variation on what's commonly known as the desert responsibility thesis, uh, going back <coughs> to Feinberg. And this holds that if there is a reason to punish uh, a person, uh, and this reason is generated by the search suitable feature of that person's doing wrong, then the person is morally responsible for doing wrong. So no desert without moral responsibility. That's the first thing we could try and challenge. Secondly, of course, we could try and challenge this step. That's to challenge what, again, for lack of a better term, I called the libertarian responsibility thesis, which says that if the person is morally responsible for uh, doing wrong, in the sense implied by the retributive desert responsibility thesis, then she freely willed doing wrong. And I'm going to try and look at each of those and then a third uh, sort of quasi-version. So first, let's look at the possibility of there being no free will, no responsibility, and just desert. Um, so desert, it's commonly accepted as one of the few things that people agree on is constituted by a tripart relation between the desert subject, object, and desert base. And it's also widely accepted that the uh, foundation of the cert, the background conditions that need to be in place, will vary with the cert base. Um, it's sometimes accepted in the sense that people accept that there could be different desert bases giving rise to different background conditions, but holds that only one of these is an actual condition. Uh, so that some of the uh, desert bases that other theorists assume uh, are not genuine desert bases. Uh, but could there be a desert base that worked without responsibility? Well, here's an example. So, suppose we've got a state lottery. Government of uh, Exemplia decides to hold a lottery, they pick one random citizen, and they grant this lucky winner an all-expenses trip around the world. The lottery is drawn, and up comes Andrea. And we can assume, for the sake of argument, that Andrea is in no relevant sense responsible for this outcome. She was born a citizen of the country, she didn't know about this lottery, she didn't vote for the government, and so on and so forth. Yet, it wouldn't sound odd, in everyday language at least, to phrase her claim to receiving the prize in terms of dessert. We, we wouldn't uh, find it counterintuitive 
to say that she deserved to receive the prize, having won the lottery. Now, she couldn't, of course, deserve to win the lottery, but having won the lottery, uh, it might sound reasonable to say that she deserved to receive the prize, even if she's not responsible for it. So that sounds as if there are situations in which people can deserve things without being responsible for them. The question then is whether retributive desert, the particular type of desert at stake when we want to justify punishment, is a form of desert that can do without responsibility. And there are reasons to be sceptical that this could be the case, I think. So the first thing to note is that uh, what seems to be doing the work in the Andrea case is entitlement. And some people hold that entitlement is an entirely different form of normative claim from desert. Uh, which in the context of this argument is fine. If that's the case, then it's not going to help the retributivist at all. But there are some theorists who hold that entitlement can work as a background condition for desert. So you can deserve things having properly fulfilled the conditions for being entitled to them. Uh, and let's assume that that could be true. The question then is, could it be true for retributive desert? Supposing it's true in the Andrea case, could it also be true for the cases where we need to punish people. And here's two arguments why I think entitlement isn't going to do the trick. First of all, entitlement seems to be the wrong kind of background condition because it could be at once a personal, institutional, and waivable. Uh, so let me explain what I mean by that. A personal means that it's uh, based on features of the person that are not suitably related to her individual personhood. So imagine, for instance, that instead of the government doing a state lottery for a prize, the government did a state lottery for uh, an all-expenses-paid trip for eight years to the local prison. Now, that would sound very odd. We would refuse to recognize that that could be a proper grounds of desert, even though all we've changed is a prize into a punishment. Uh, and what seems to be to explain why that couldn't be a plausible case of desert is that uh, it's not related to Andrea in the proper personal sense, and we need that to be true for cases of punishment. It could also be institutional. So think of the following case, and suppose, I don't, I don't know if this is true, and I suppose it isn't, but suppose that Nazi Germany had implemented laws that entitled any Aryan to compensation if that Aryan unwittingly associated with a Jew because the Jew had forgotten to wear her yellow star of David. That's not an entirely impossible scenario. It might have been true for all I know. Um, it would be plausible still under those circumstances to say that the Aryan would be entitled to compensation because entitlement is institutional. But it would sound highly peculiar to say that the Aryan deserved compensation, or that the Jew deserved to compensate the Aryan. So there seems to be uh, a relative difference based on institutional or institutions. And finally, of course, entitlements are normally held to be waivable. So if you're entitled to something, uh, you have a moral right to waive your entitlement, which will relieve others of their duty to providing you with it. But that seems not to be true of punishment. And if it was, uh, we would have a hard time justifying the vast majority of it. So, second reason why it's probably not true. Responsibility seems to be required for retributive desert because retributive desert is based 
this is arguable. I think that uh, it's widely assumed that retributive dessert is based on our interpersonal reactions uh, or our reactive attitudes. So uh, some people say that uh, it cashes out in terms of praising and blame. And blame is uh, an interpersonal reactive attitude. Uh, and those seem to presuppose responsibility. That's why they're reactive attitudes, and that's why they're different than from how we interact with uh, objects that don't have responsibility in the way that agents do. Um, so non-responsible actions don't seem to be appropriate uh, objects for reactive attitudes, because they don't, in the appropriate way, express or shape the character of the moral agent. That's, uh, that's, I think, a, a fairly widely held view in uh, the literature among supporters of ritualism. Okay, but this also leads conveniently on to the second strategy, because, of course, the fam most famous exponent of uh, the importance of reactive attitudes in this context is Peter Strawson, who in Freedom and Resentment argued that we could, based on reactive attitudes, uh, hold each other morally responsible, even if the world was determined. So there's a compatibilist argument based on reactive attitudes. And hence we might want to explore that. So I've called it a semi-compatibilist retributivism. I want to talk about whether or not that would be really possible. Semi-compatibilism following John Martin Fisher is distinguished from sort of wholly fleshed out compatibilism by holding only that moral responsibility is compatible with determinism while being agnostic about whether or not this is also true for free will. So it's an easier claim to defend in some senses. We're only saying that moral responsibility is uh, compatible with determinism. We don't need to talk about free will. Uh, the traditional way of defending moral responsibility in compatibilism is to say that we don't need what's called the principle of alternative possibilities. Uh, which is to say that we don't need to be agents located in a situation where we could genuinely choose different possibilities. We only require counterfactual internal causality of the relevant kind. So uh, often they'll, compatibilists will put this in the form of uh, a requirement that if the agent had wanted to do something, which is the counterfactual, the agent would actually have done it. So a person is responsible for performing an action if and only if it's true that if she had wanted to do the action, she would have done it, and if she had wanted not to do the action, she would not have done it. And she actually did the action. That places uh, sort of uh, a relevant uh, condition on her internal causality. So her psychology uh, <coughs> and her reasonableness becomes part of the explanation in uh, what to many compatibilists seems the right sense. It's often also cast out in the sense of being reasons responsive. So agents are responsible for their actions to the extent that they performed those actions under circumstances in which they were responsive to reasons. They could have responded to reasons. Whether they did so or not, they would influence what we think of them, but they could have at least. So this denies the libertarian responsibility thesis while affirming moral responsibility. Okay. This argument has actually been presented in this particular context by uh, Michael Pardo and, I forget his name, Patterson, um, in a, an article that's coming out in a, a collection of papers on Oxford University Press in a couple of months ago. Uh, and here's their basic argument. 
Retributive dessert requires only moral responsibility. Suppose that's true. Moral responsibility requires only sufficient control. And sufficient control is satisfied by a causally efficacious, decent responsive mechanism. That's possibilism. But here's the crucial step. Legally liable persons, the persons that we want to hold legally liable or criminally responsible in general, do possess exactly such a mechanism. In fact, that's what we try to pick out when we distinguish between those who are and who are not criminally responsible. And then you've got it. I think maybe I'll skip reading that. That's their version of the conclusion. So what's the problem here? Well, one problem is that it needs to hold under source incompatibilism. Uh, this is Galen Strawson's classical version of the source incompatibilist argument. Um, source incompatibilists claim that we're only responsible for our current actions if we're responsible all the way down, so to speak. So as in the Indian fable, it has to be turtles for, forever. Which can't be true, of course, because sure that our actions are determined by our environment and the way we are, and we're not responsible for what we do unless we're responsible all the way down. But it's also true that the way we are is shaped partly by external influences, partly by our current performing actions, and we're not responsible for our first character forming actions. How could we be? At some stage in early infancy, we perform our first character forming action, but that action is based on nothing that we're responsible for. So that action is entirely determined by prior causes. And in that sense, we're not responsible for anything that follows after it either. So there are compatibilists, non-historical compatibilists, who bite the bullet and deny that we need to be responsible that way. The question is whether that form of compatibilism is uh, going to do the trick for retributivists. So they'll say, we just need the right reasons responsive mechanism. doesn't matter whether we're historically responsible. And the question I want to raise is, uh, this might be, paraphrasing Daniel Dennett, the moral responsibility worth wanting, but is it also the moral responsibility worth punishing? And there are manipulation cases that suggest it isn't. So manipulation cases, as many of you probably know, are traditionally used um, against the principle of alternative possibilities. Harry Frankfurt was the first to introduce them into the debate. But here's one that's pertinent to this case, and it's by uh, Green and Cohen. So they're imagining a court case, and scientists have been brought to the stand as a witness, and uh, the prosecutor asks her, please tell us about your relationship to the accused, Mr. Puppet. The scientist says, well, it's very simple, really. I designed him. I carefully selected every gene in his body and carefully scripted every significant event in his life so that he would become precisely what he is today. I selected his mother knowing that she would let him cry for hours and hours without picking him up. I carefully selected each of his relatives, teachers, friends, enemies, etc., and told them exactly what to say to him and how to treat him. We we're dealing with sort of a very... Um, nasty piece of manipulation here. Things generally went as planned, but not always. For example, the angry letters written to his dead father were not supposed to appear until he was 14, but by the end of his 13th year, he'd already written four of them. In retrospect, I think this was because of a handful of substitutions I made to his eighth chromosome. At any rate, my plans for him succeeded, as we have for 95% of the people I've designed, and I assure you that the accused deserves none of the credit for this. So here's a clear case of somebody who's not historically responsible in any sense. 
every event that has led Mr. Pabit to performing the crime in, uh, in question was designed so as to produce the result that Mr. Pabit performed that crime. Uh, and it seems implausible to say that the moral responsibility that Mr. Pabit preserves, the non-historical moral responsibility, would be sufficient to ground claims of desert in such a situation. But of course, all of us are in that situation if determinism is true. There's no relevant difference between random and intelligent design here. The fact that Mr. Puppet has been scripted by intelligent actors doesn't make a difference to his moral responsibility. And all the rest of this have been equally designed, if the world really is determinist, just by random factors. So I don't think semi-compatibilism is going to do the trick either. And I'm running out of time, so I think I'll skip the quasi-retributivist <coughs> argument and go straight to the last bit, rescuing responsibility from the retributivists. Okay, so Stephen S. Morse has argued uh, on several occasions in intellectual articles that this doesn't pose as much of a problem as might be assumed. And the basis of this argument is that the law, as it actually works, doesn't presuppose free will or moral responsibility in the strong sense. It only presupposes rationality, uh, for instance, in the, what's called the McNaughton test. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure how this is performed, but they test whether the uh, offender is rational to the extent that you can hold him or her accountable for her or his actions. Um, so that's the standard test of American jurisprudence, uh, and it excuses people who fail it while holding responsible in the criminal sense those who do not. And neurological determinism doesn't undermine rationality. Nobody has claimed that, including Green and Cohen. Uh, they're not saying that we're not rational agents or reasons responsive or anything like that. So there's no challenge for the law. This problem with this argument, though, first of all, as Green and Cohen point out, uh, rationality is presumably just a proxy for responsibility. I mean, what we're ultimately concerned with when we test for rationality is whether we should hold people responsible. It's just an easier way of getting at that than trying to test for responsibility directly. And secondly, if we do have a distinction here, so we treat people who are criminally responsible very different from people who are not. One set of persons we punish, the other set we let go. Then we need an explanation for that and a justification for that differential treatment, which it seems could only be provided by the kind of justification that uh, Morse denies is necessary. So, Here's an attempt to do that, and I've called it the position everyone loves to hate because that's what Richard Arneson calls a relevantly similar position uh, attributable to JJC Smart. Uh, but it's not exactly the same. Smart holds uh, compatibilism, but justified by its beneficial consequences. So he says we should hold persons to be morally responsible just if it is the case that doing so will be beneficial for uh, the future it will lead them to become better moral agents and so on. That's a controversial position. Uh, I find it somewhat plausible actually, but uh, it's a position I think is harder to defend than what I want to defend here. So what I'm saying is only we should hold people uh, or persons criminally responsible, which of course is a weaker claim than moral responsibility, if and just if it happens that introducing this distinction will have beneficial consequences. And I think there's reasons to suspect that it might. Um, I'll give you just three. So this is the claim I want to make. Um, 
And here's three reasons why this might be the case. First of all, deterrence works only for responsible acts. It's impossible to deter people from doing something for which they're not responsible in the criminal responsibility sense. Uh, if they're under the influence of uh, powerful hallucinogenic drugs, for instance, they're impossible to deter. So uh, we're not going to deter anybody by holding uh, or by punishing the irresponsible. Uh, we're also going to be more likely to reform prisoners if we punish them for actions for which they can assume responsibility, which again I assume is only going to be possible for uh, a particular set of offences. And finally, uh, given the widespread support for libertarian intuitions, uh, I think it's uncontroversial that among non-philosophers, people, the vast majority of people are libertarians. Uh, I think the criminal justice system would lose massive support if we attempted to abolish the uh, responsibility distinction in law. Um, so if we want to maintain public support and uh, what Garner calls the displacement function of the law, we should probably stick with the distinction. Okay, so just to sum up, I've given you the, pro, the, the green Cohen version of the argument against uh, retributivism in a slightly uh, modified form. I've given you an account of retributivist justification to try and zoom in on the set of theories that I think are uh, problematic, given this argument. And then I've explored from you two, sorry, uh, the two different ways of trying to counter that argument uh, and finally given you a, a reason to think that maybe we can preserve criminal responsibility, even if the argument falls. Thank you very much.